0: I've been walking through the book of of Daniel, and uh something struck me this last week that um, that uh, that that really just kind of kind of moved me a little bit, and so I kind of want to work uh, last week into this week a little bit and I think that that's what the intention of the scripture is. And so I, I, I want to I bring that out in what we're talking about this morning. Let me briefly say first, though, that uh, many of us do not understand the gospel, um, which is the crux of the issue for Christians. The gospel is everything. Uh, many of us don't understand the gospel because we don't understand our position with God prior to receiving the gospel, we didn't understand what we were saved from, and so we don't understand what we've been saved to. We don't understand the state of our heart, the state of who we are, and so we don't understand how to continually go back to God for grace and, and for mercy that He gives freely. And so uh, what you end up with is uh, are stale, lifeless Christians. In fact, this last week, uh, one of our guys, Josh Hawes, who... Puts the questions together for our community groups, and I hope you went through that. Um, If you're in a community group, if you're not, you should. Uh, But he called my attention to this book by Spurgeon that I had not heard of before um, called Humility and How to Get It. And one of the first uh, quotes, I could not find the book, all I could find is a series of quotes off of online. Uh, But one of the first quotes that is stated online is, is this it says, stale godliness is ungodliness. Let our religion be as warm and constant and natural as the flow of the blood in our veins. A living God must be served in a living way. And so the, the, the question is, is are, are we serving God in a living way? Or is, is religion dead and lifeless for us? Is, 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 are we living stale godliness? And the, and the way that you live stale godliness is that you... Uh, you're, you're kind of barely making it. You're kind of barely making it, and you're saying, Man, I just, I'm just trying to be moral, and in some ways you're failing. We all are failing in some ways, but you're just barely making it, and it's, it's joyless. It's, it's joyless, and, and to some degree you're just hanging on by a thread. And, and some of us have no joy in God. We have no joy in who He is. That's why we just sang that song, we just don't have this joy that's just, that's, that's erupting out of us because of the Father who loves us. We don't have this joy that, that is erupting us, and, and the question is, is, is why don't we have that joy? Why don't we have this joy that is, that is just erupting in us, and why are we just constantly led to believe that like, I, I just, I'm just trying to be more moral, I'm just trying to get with God, I'm just trying to do better. And the truth is, is because this stale godliness is brought about because true Christianity, and I'm, I'm not here to question your faith. I don't, know, I don't know where you stand with God. But some of us need to question whether we ever actually received the gospel in the first place or whether we have gone on receiving it. Not that your salvation is contingent on that. Jesus says, All that the Father has given me shall come to me in John chapter 6. And then he goes on to say, And I shall lose none. So Jesus isn't losing you. If you're his, you're his. You're not going anywhere. But some of us have either never received because we've received a false gospel. And a false gospel being this that God is all about your happiness. He's all about honoring you. He's all about you being successful in all of those, uh, in all of those ways. and all of the ways that, that you want to be. And somehow, this God that, that, that you received is a God that says that He's going to make much of you. And in a sense, that can be true. But in another sense, it cannot be true in and of yourself. And too many of us have, have not heard the truth From that. And so last week, what we were talking about was this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, who's this king. And for some reason, God is pursuing this guy. For some reason, God keeps coming back to him with dreams and keeps coming back to him with dreams. And he just doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. He's coming back to him with these dreams and saying, Hey, your kingdom is not forever, it's going to fail. And he freaks him out, and he, he, gets, he gets worried, and he gets scared. And so he finally goes to Daniel, the man of God, who is going to hear the word of God through. And he does this repeatedly, and then finally, finally, he gets one last word. And Daniel tells him that uh, you're, you are the tree that is going to be chopped down that you saw in this dream and you're going to turn into an animal and, and frolic in this, in this field. And you are going to be that way until you know that the Most High rules over all. And what, what does he do? He does the same thing that you and I do. Which is we hear the word and then we walk away. It goes in one ear and out the other. And so what, what's true about Nebuchadnezzar is that he has a head knowledge without a heart transformation. He, he, he knows some things about God. He knows to call him the most high. He finally gives in and says, okay, call Daniel the guy who knows the most high. But there's a head knowledge without this heart transformation, and so many of us are in that place. It's stale godliness. I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar knew God at that point until God had brought him to his knees to the nth degree And too many times we come to God to say, God, uh, help me uh, make my life better. And one of the worst things that could possibly happen to you is that your life would get better so that you don't need God. God's grace was shown to the hardest heart. Think about this. Think about it. Here's a a king of, uh, or the king at the time, of the most powerful regime in the world. He has, he has anything he wants at a moment's notice. It, he has anything and everything. And yet God changed his heart. God is sovereign in salvation. God pursued him and pursued him and pursued him and pursued him. And I believe this, that if God is calling you, He is pursuing you, and He is pursuing you, and He is pursuing you. You may have been sitting in church for your entire life, or you may have just started, but God is pursuing you. And the question is, how do you receive Him? And so chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 4 ends with this. Uh, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 37, praise and extol... And honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Boom! Nebuchadnezzar gets it. He finally gets it. Now, we quickly go to another story. Nebuchadnezzar is dead and gone. And here we have a new king, King Belshazzar. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. This is a national rave. It is a rave of a, an unbelievable uh, definition. I mean, it is it is incredible. And so there's a, probably around a thousand people. It's an estimation of the people that were there. I'm going to read the whole thing, and it's, it's, it's long, but I'm going to read the whole thing. So... Here we go. Let me get a drink of water first for that purpose. So Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, uh, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I have to stop. I can't read the whole thing. Sorry. I, I, I was going to do it. I decided not to. Okay. What's, what's go- I don't want you to get lost. That's why, that's why I'm doing this. It, it's long. What's happening here? Well, years ago, when Daniel and his three friends were taken into captivity, into Babylon, they, they are Jews, they are from Israel. When they were taken captive, what was also taken were these vessels from the temple. These vessels are holy vessels. These are vessels that are used in the the practice and the worship of God during those days. These are things that God specifically said that the Israelites were to make, and these were supposed to be used in the worship of God and and for that purpose alone. They were stolen. They were taken to uh, Babylon. And so here is this massive Rave, and what's what's happening is that there there are women, there are concubines, there are thousands of people that are hanging out, and they are partying. And what's happening during this time is that he's drinking wine in front of the thousands. I mean, think about like this—you know, beat in the background, boom, 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 and, you know—and he's he's up front. I I don't know if they had like a, a large gym bay or something like that that they're getting this bass with, but you know, I, I mean, think about. The the raunchiness of our culture. Think about what's going on on the stage. Think about what's happening on the side. Think about what's happening all over the place. This is depravity in a big way. Some of us have been there. Some of us have been in the midst of that. And what does he do? He says, uh, he's drinking wine. He's he's getting hammered in front of everybody. And, and, And so he says, tell you what, Bring in the golden vessels, bring in the vessels from that God, that supposed God over there and bring them to me so that we can all drink. And so what do they do? They take these vessels and they spe- he's specifically trying to defile them. He is sticking his finger in the eye of God in a sense and he's saying, take that. Now why is this important? Well, historians believe that his enemy, uh, Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, is outside the gates and has been there for two years. Just before this, two years prior, Belshazzar had been in a battle, and he was completely routed. And so what happens is he goes back into his city, which... One commentary says, could have had walls that were 350 feet tall. I don't even know how that's possible. I've heard other figures as well. But it was massive. And he goes back in there with his army, closes the doors, and locks himself in and is just sitting there. And so what many people believe is what's happening here is that this guy is in serious trouble. There is a stronger army outside the gates, but they can't get in. And they haven't been able to get in for two years. And they have loads of supplies. In fact, they have gardens. They have livestock. They have everything they need to last these guys forever. And so they're inside, and they are just kind of basking in this. And many people say that this is just bravado. <laughs> you think you've got me under siege? Guess what? I'm going to party. I'm going to party. I'm going to forget my troubles. And what, what, is, what does he engage, engage in? It's alcohol. And it seems like it's sex. He is looking for escape. And in the midst of that escape, says, you know what? While we're at it, let's mock this God and his goblets. Let's just, we have these incredible walls. They're impenetrable. No one can get through them. And so let's just, Kind of sit and wait this out. He's mocking God. He's thinking he is uh, impenetrable. Nothing's going to happen. And so he's partying. He's getting wasted. And he's mocking God. And then verse 4 says, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And what's he doing there? It's just flat-out idolatry. It's just flat-out idolatry that he's, he's engaging in. He's worshiping and serving the created thing. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse, uh, verses uh, 21, chapter 1, verse, actually, uh, verse 21 said, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what did they do? What, what does humanity do? They praise and they worship and they honor these created things, which are not real gods. And so he's in a world of trouble. He's in a world of trouble. Verse five immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So what's taking place here? He sees this writing on the wall. And in American culture, we, we often say the writing was on the wall. It, it, it's over. <laughs> I'll just tell you the end of the story right there. You know, it, It's over for you, man. This, this is not going to go well. And so what happens is he he sees this writing. He he gets he gets incredibly scared. He does exactly what probably his grandfather or somebody in his lineage was Nebuchadnezzar, not his immediate father, most likely historians say. But he does exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. He says, "Call all these guys. Call call the dudes who are spiritual advisors. Come give me the worldly advice. Tell me what this means." what's been written on the wall here. In fact, he, he tries to like beckon them, say, hey, I'm gonna clothe you in purple. I think that's why he didn't get an answer, was, I mean, I just, I don't want a purple robe. And so he says, he want, wants to hear this, and they're perplexed, and so what happens in verse 10? The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God's. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the father of the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now that is... That is not somebody coming and saying, you know what? I feel like there is this guy. What was his name? What was his name? Was it uh, Dan? Danita, you know, what? something something along? No, I know that there's this guy Daniel, and this is what he does. He's got the spirit of the holy. It says gods in, in this translation, but if you look at the actual word for God right there, it doesn't look like it's plural. It looks like it's singular, and so it looks like this queen, who's probably his mother, not his wife, But this queen says, the spirit of the holy God is in this guy. This is the guy you need to talk to. He's known for this. Think about this for just a second. Daniel's life has been shown for what it is over and over and over again. Years upon years have passed since his intercession with Nebuchadnezzar. And he's still known for a guy that's walking with God. He's still known for this. I mean, we're going to talk more about that next week, but he's still known for this. And so what's happening that the queen comes and says, this guy's known, and so you should call him. So verse 13 says, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Like something, he should know something. Just use the golden vessels that were brought in from Judah, which is Israel. And here's this guy, Daniel, now standing in my court, who's from Judah. Uh Uh-oh. And he says this, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And so he says to him, hey, I'm going I'm to give you whatever you want if you will just tell me what this means. Think about what, what, that, what that's like. I'll, I'll give you whatever you want if you tell me what I want to hear. Just tell me what I want to hear. Such incredible pressure on Daniel to, say, to change it. To tweak the word of God. To tweak the word of God that, that, that God is speaking Belshazzar, such incredible pressure. Do you feel that pressure? The pressure to change the word of God, to say something else? Many people do. Many people in this age range, especially this generation, want to change the word of God because it's uncomfortable. Daniel doesn't shy away from it. Daniel is a man of God. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Snap. Wow. This guy is serious about following God. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, where's he going here? He's going back historically. O king the most high god gave Nebuchadnezzar your father it's probably his grandfather he's in the lineage they don't have words for grandfather or things like that at that time so everyone every male in your uh, in your family is basically a father not necessarily grandfather so he's talking about somebody who's in his lineage which is Nebuchadnezzar the most high god gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, look at at this, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt with proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over uh, sets over it whom he will, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew the history. The history's written down, at least, if, not, if he did not know Nebuchadnezzar personally but he probably did know him. And he knows what happened. He knows what happened repeatedly. He had seen God work in these ways. He had understood it. And yet what was taking place is that he did not bend to the will of God the way that Nebuchadnezzar did. He did not humble himself. He did not not humble himself in the way that Nebuchadnezzar did. It, look at verse four thirty-seven again. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar gets it. Belshazzar does not, though he had seen all of this, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted verse twenty-three again in chapter five. But you have lifted your, uh, up yourself against the Lord of Heaven. It's not just that he was partying. It's not that he was just engaged in in, in uh, drunkenness. It's that he was lifting himself up. He was challenging God. And then he went a step further and he said, You know what? I'm going to take the devoted things, I'm going to take the things that belong to God, and I'm going to use them in my partying. I'm going to use them in my life for my purposes. And so that's what he does. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, and uh, uh, you, and you, and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, that which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways. You have not. Honored then from his presence. Whose presence? From God's presence. No honor in his life towards this God. He worships and serves these things. He's not honoring him. He's not following him. He's not just that, but he's against him. Then from his presence, from God's presence, God has spoken here. The Most High God. The hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. We finally hear what the writing on the wall was. Mene, mene, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Look, look it's, it's, it's repeated twice, but he just tells it once. The, the word inscribed on the wall is repeated twice many, many. I, I think that's really interesting. God has numbered your days, uh, numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. It was important that he hear that twice. Who knows why? But it needed to be communicated. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. What do you do when you hear a word from God that comes to you that is, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I have come under judgment. The word of God has spoken to me and I am under the judgment of God. Do you know what our our culture says? Those Those judgmental people, and let's be honest, there's a lot of judgmental Christians out there. There's a lot of reason to believe that Christians are judgmental, but the Bible gets thrown in with that. The word of God gets thrown in with that. And so in our culture, that is basically saying live however you want. Use the culture as a canvas to paint who you are on it. Worship and serve whatever you want. In fact, worship yourself. That is is the most profound thing that's going on in our culture, which is leading to decay and, and just absolute chaos in our world. Do whatever you want. And then when you read the word and the word speaks to that and the word condemns that lifestyle or condemns that way of living, And we say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. How do we respond? But how does Belshazzar respond here? He hears it. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. He didn't even listen to what Daniel had said. Daniel said, I don't want the gifts. We don't know the significance of that. But it's clear that Daniel said, keep your gifts for yourself, give them to someone else. And Belshazzar says, yeah, well, I'm king. Okay, fine, give him the gifts. Let's be done with it. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old, which is the beginning of the medo Persian Empire he's killed immediately God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble there are two stories here there's Nebuchadnezzar a tale of two kings if you will there's Nebuchadnezzar who has every reason to believe that he is it he's the most amazing thing ever God's pursuing him. God's giving him information. God's sending dreams to him saying, you must worship the Most High God. And what happens repeatedly is that he does not, he does not, he does not. And then finally, God breaks him. And how does he break him? He sends him out of his mind. He has a tragedy. He has a circumstance. He has something that causes him to lose control over his entire life. And he finally says, he looks up to heaven and and he says, okay, you're God and I'm not. He finally gives in. But why does he finally give in? How does he finally give in? But you look at Belshazzar. He knows all of this, and yet he continues to commit the sins of the past. He knows what Nebuchadnezzar went through. He knows that he started following Yahweh, it seems like. He knows his experiences. Daniel is a well-known guy in his culture who knows the word of God and yet he spurns it and he spurns it and he looks away and he doesn't want anything to do with it. But see, here's the thing. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. But what is the process of getting through this incredible pride? See, what's going on in their, in, in their lives, in Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar's life is this, it's the same problem that you and I deal with. It is the definition of the human condition. You look at this absurdity and you say, I would never take goblets out of uh, a temple or out of uh, you know a, uh, what, whatever it is, a monastery, or, or out of the church and use them for some crazy... Pr-. That's not the point. It sounds weird, but here's the thing, is that we use God... We put our finger in God's eye or so we think. We say, you know what, forget you. I'll do whatever I want. You may not even be saying it knowingly. We do it through our actions. It's what happened in the garden. When Satan comes to Eve and says, God knows that you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Eve, here's what you need to know. God wants to keep you from something. God wants to keep you from eating this fruit because you'll be smarter than God. You'll know better. The first sin was ultimately of pride. And every sin since then has devolved into, I'm sorry, it has erupted from pride. The pride of saying, I know what's best. I know what should happen. I know what should take place. But here's the thing, is that sometimes we can be told a gospel that does not resolve that pride. It goes along with that pride and says, you can have your pride and God. You can have your pride and God will give you more pride. God, God, God is going to give you, fill in the blank, your best life now. God is going to. God is going to make you incredible. You just got to have enough faith. You got to have this without ever dealing with this pride, without ever dealing with it. And although you and I may not express it in the same way as a world leader, Can. Nebuchadnezzar's heart is my heart. Belshazzar's heart is my heart. And the only question is, will I be humbled or will I stay in my pride? Will I be humbled or will I stay in my pride? And so, what needs to happen in our lives Well, what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life? It was a fantastic and complete and total humiliation. A complete humiliation. How did he he get to a point where he was with God, that is, Nebuchadnezzar? It was through going through a humiliation. See, we talked about last week that there's the pride of sin, like sin is ultimately rooted in our pride. But then, in order to step out of this pride and to truly receive God and everything that He has for you, there has to be something that takes place. There has to be something that is lowered, and it is me and you, it is our ego. It is our belief that somehow I can fix this. It is our belief that somehow I can make this happen. It's it's somehow like I I I am continually trying. I keep thinking more and more of myself. But what needs to take place is a holy humiliation. Have you ever heard that before? You probably haven't. It's not used very often, but I'm using it intentionally. Does God really want to humiliate you? We talk about the word humility, and humility doesn't grasp. When you say, you know, I I need to humble myself. No, what really needs to happen is God's level of humility needs to come on your life and on my life. God's level of humility needs to come on our life. And it needs to be impressed upon us in a way that we are completely stripped of any and all ability to control our circumstances. For some people, it takes what Nebuchadnezzar went through, which is losing his mind and wallowing around in a field for seven years, being fed grass like an ox, and God basically with his thumb on him and saying, are you going to give in? I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble. I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble. Are you going to give in? And do you know how we do that? Do you know how we don't give in? Do you know why we're in, in the field for seven years? And it's, it's, it's through saying this. It's saying, I could never be forgiven for the things that I've done. I I can't receive it. I I have to take care of it myself. I'll never forgive myself for that sin. God opposes the proud. God opposes the person who says, I must take care of this on my own. Or you might be saying, you know what? I'm cool with this religion stuff. I like the morality, but I, I don't really need that. God opposes the proud. And if he's gracious to you, he will put his thumb on you and say, I will not let go until you see that I am the most high God and I rule over all and I will have none of your pride and arrogance. God's graciousness, God's goodness is in this. God's way of stripping us of our pride is holy humiliation, holy humiliation, and it means to be wholly humiliated. In fact, another quote that was shared from, uh, with the OC, uh, with our community groups from Spurgeon was this. He says, for my own part, my constant prayer is that I may know the, the worst of my case. Whatever the knowledge may cost me. I want to know the worst about me. Do you know what you, what's being taught in our world today? In Christian churches? Here's the best about you. Here's, here's, here's the best about you. You're okay. You're doing fine. Spurgeon, who's believed to be one of the best preachers in the world at one point, says, I want to know the worst of my case, whatever the knowledge may cost me. I know that an accurate estimate of my own heart can never be otherwise than lowering to my self-esteem. But God forbid that I should be spared the humiliation which springs from the truth. The sweet red apples of self esteem are deadly poison. Who would wish to be destroyed thereby? The bitter fruits of self knowledge are always healthful, they're always good for you. The bitter fruits of the humiliation that comes from this is who I am in relation to God. This is who I am. I don't have a leg to stand on. I don't have what it takes. I can't fix this. I can't forgive myself. I'll go to my grave with this. He says, the bitter fruits of self-knowledge, knowing this about myself, are always good for you, especially if washed down with the waters of repentance and sweetened with the draft from the wells of salvation, he who loves his own soul will not despise them. You will not despise the truth about who you are when you know that the God of the universe is waiting for you. You're not going to despise what he has to say if you're truly going to walk with him. And so what does he say? Why don't we all put ourselves in Belshazzar's shoes? Many. This is the judgment that's come down on mankind. God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and he has brought it to an end. Let that sink in for a second. God has numbered the days of your life. God has numbered the days that you will be successful. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. And he has brought it to an end. That is true. Not just for Belshazzar, but for all of us. Without Christ, without eternity in front of us through Jesus Christ... God has numbered our, our days and He has brought it to an end. That is the judgment. That is what is happening. That is what is going to take place. Teckle, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Look at your life. Some of us who may have a, 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 just a smidgen of humility... Maybe you've, you've had some type of success, and you keep, you're, you're coming upon this success, and you begin to have this thought of, why me? Why not the guy that, that I started with? Why do I have this success? Me and my friend, we got married at the same time, and like her life is going great, but, uh, or, and my life isn't. So why is her life going great? And pretty soon she begins to think like, well, I have no idea why, but maybe it's just because I chose wisely. Maybe it's because I'm just that good. And so we go from this level of humility that is, that is speaking to us and is, and is saying, listen, listen, you don't deserve this goodness. You don't deserve this grace, this common grace that's coming on you. You don't deserve what's happening. You don't deserve this growth. It didn't come from you. It didn't come from your life. It didn't come from your abilities, but you know what we do? You know what, you know what? I'll write a book about how to find a great husband. I'll, I'll say everything that I did to make that happen. I'll write a book about business, and I'll say how, 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 what a great guy I am, and that's what makes me a good person without ever acknowledging this. There's no reason why I'm in this position. For some reason God smiled on my life, he allowed it to take place. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. What you believe about yourself isn't true, you're not just that good. God decided to give that to you, just like he decided to to bless Nebuchadnezzar with, with his kingdom. He did the same thing for Belshazzar, but God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now what will your response be? Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It's essentially saying everything you own will be dashed to pieces. Everything that you've been working for, everything that you think that you have, it will go for nothing. Belshazzar said, okay. Give him the robe. Let's be done with it. Nebuchadnezzar was on his knees and said, he's the most high and he rules over all and he gives in. The humiliation of faith, you can can respond with more pride or you can respond with humility and if you respond with humility and you say, okay, God, okay, okay. What awaits you? What, what do we get for, for this? What do we get for saying okay to God when we have a true estimation of ourselves, when we see us for who we really are, when we see all of, all of our, our problems and our issues? What happens? this same God that no one wants to hear from. They say, Man, he's just judgmental and he's wrathful. Or sometimes they'll say, you know what? That's not my God. That's not my kind of God who's always wrathful and doing all these crazy things. No, God's wrath is real. It's real, but just as real is his mercy. His wrath comes as the bad news of life that says the wrath of God is coming upon you. How will you respond to this? How will you respond to God's mercy? Look at Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, which God? The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. But God, being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the offer is? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Walk through the humiliation of faith and say, yes, I I am humiliated. I don't have what it takes. And walk into the mercies of God. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That's the God. God that we're talking about. It says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one one would dare even to die. But God, look at this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't as though God saw you and said, you know what, he or she has stopped having premarital sex and they've gotten out of of this and they've gotten out of that and so guess what, I'm just gonna bless him with my mercy because he's done that. God never has done that. God, for some crazy reason, looked down and he said, you are mine and you will be with me and you will walk with me. God shows his love for us While I'm sinning against him, while I'm drinking from the goblets from the temple, while I'm saying, yay to the wood God and the silver God and whatever God I'm worshiping, my creation, my success, God says, while I'm still sinning, he dies for me. I'm going on sinning and he just dies for me. This God... through whom we have now received reconciliation. No, we just came full circle. Stale godliness is not godliness. Stale godliness is motivated by my pride that somehow I've earned what God can give me. Stale godliness. Is what's epidemic in the American church. And praise God for things that even feel like persecution, even though they don't even, they pale in comparison to what people overseas are dealing with. Stale godliness is perpetuated in our churches when when we do not talk about the reality that you have been weighed, you have been measured, your days are numbered, your life will be nothing before the king. The true king. When we don't tell the truth, that's where stale godliness comes in because I don't need God. All I need is a little bit of religion. But if I need God because I've been humiliated to the point that says the only way I can, I can go on is with God, that, my friends, is a godliness that just goes on. And it doesn't Stop. And it's driven by by this reality. There's nothing in me that he looked at and said was lovely. And yet he went to the cross for me. I have no business standing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I have no business being loved by the Most High God. I have no business being a recipient of his grace and mercy. And yet he loves me. Look, look at what it says. More than that, verse 11 of Romans 5, more than that, we also rejoice in God. We rejoice in Him. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, we have now received reconciliation. Your religion will stay dead as long as you believe that you're responsible for your success, for your salvation, or for anything in your life. Allow yourself to be humiliated before the Most High God and respond in faith by saying, I give up. I give up. You went to the cross for me. Have you ever done that? Have you ever ever asked God to save you? Or has it just been something you've gone along with? Been hanging out with Christian people, you've been doing your thing, You've never been confronted with the humiliation of faith. Look deeply into the scriptures and see the truth about who you are so that you can experience the love of God found in the gospel. Lord God, we, we ask for a deep humility. Lord, you know, I, I as I was putting together this sermon, I I was peppered with the idea that, man, I mean, where's where's my pride? Where's my, my humility? I'm I'm in the same boat with these people. I I've I've gone on and I and I and I read the Bible for a living and I teach about it, and so I've gone on and 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 I've gotten comfortable in that and and that where with that has come some pride. Lord, so all of us in this room have, have we're we're at this point of pride, of thinking that we've arrived. In some way, shape, or form. And Lord, your gospel brings to the surface over and over again the areas of pride where we need you. That we're we're not just receiving the gospel as though it's just it's just. One time and then we go on to something else. No, it's it's go on receiving the gospel. Continue to walk in him. And so, Lord, we ask that of you. Lord, for those that are that are here and don't walk with you, who are confident in their job and in their work. Lord, I'm thinking of men. Younger men who feel confident. But oh God, as, as, as difficult as it is, I'm praying for the humili- the humiliation that will lead to faith. This holy humiliation. God, show them This so that they can lead their families well. Lord, I'm thinking of young women who've never understood this. Lord, we're asking that you would do this. We're asking that you would break us of our, our need to feel like we're important our need to feel like we have accomplished this. Let us see the truth in your gospel. It's in your name.